Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 22nd of February, and uh, we're coming to you live. Not live, but we're <laughs> coming to you from our basements, collective basements. Tammy is back in the United States, I believe, for the first yeah. time. So this is the first stateside episode where we're all here. <laughs> Tammy, how's the trip back from Korea? What is good, guys? What's up? Um, the United States has no system in place to check if you have coronavirus when you're coming into the country. Just FYI. Did they, they didn't have the fake fever thermometer <laughs> thermo- thermo- thing? They made a whole thing about how you had to get like a, this particular kind of test within this timeline. And then at the airport, uh, they didn't check anything. Right. Oh, so they don't make you like test negative to go on international flights anymore? They do, but they don't check it when you come into the United States. Like in Korea, they sort of glanced right. at it, but they're the sending countries, so they don't really care. Right. And then in the United States, it's just a free for all. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, I don't so, know. So. We're at this moment right now where it's kind of like, Ugh. everyone has I don't it. Know. <laughs> yeah. It's anyway. like, well, it's like, what are we going to do at this point? Like, how long can we keep up this sort of international flight thing? Not that we shouldn't. It just seems like we're kind of in a strange place with it right now right like uh it does feel like that although i'm not sure the united states ever really tried <laughs> no yeah only from yeah. like uh only from like post-colonial countries right the countries <laughs> they banned and... right. only from africa basically <laughs> it was thought... just a few african countries right that got banned mm-hmm. yeah travel. with omicron yeah yeah mm-hmm. In Korea, um, i saw australia's opening up so I, I don't know if that's like the final i guess china's the final frontier but Japan, Japan's been opening up for a while or a like little bit talking about it. <laughs> Barely. I don't yeah. know. I, I guess we're just say, like pretending it's over. I feel like China should have like, well, I know that they couldn't, but they should, I feel like they should have just like having the Olympics in China was the worst country to have the Olympics in. Cause there was no crowds or anything like that. And all the athletes were miserable cause they're in the bubbles. You know, it seems like they should have just done it in like, Texas or Florida or something and at least give a sense of the winter Olympics in Texas uh yeah or like uh, there was no snow in Beijing anyway what's the most what's the most uh what's the most like Florida liberated north northern state with snow in it yeah that's a good I don't know, they could have done Canada's it in really Nevada strict. maybe like in Tahoe area Reno something like yeah. that I that's mean true. Utah? it would have been it was what? Yeah, Utah would have been perfect. Utah although, would have been. <laughs> oh right, yeah. They should probably have the. Right. I think they had the Winter Olympics in Utah a few years ago. I think they have. Mitt Romney. Yeah. Mitt Romney was like the big, right. uh, the big face of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the skiing would have been better. It wouldn't have felt like they're going down like one of those uh, hot, hot wheels tracks or something. Which <laughs> downhill like or like a ski slope in a mall. That was like the feeling. The I know, it's so Oh, this is a half pipe in a mall in the Mall of America. Oh, no, <laughs> the snow is oh, a little no. slushy. <laughs> like many people have many complaints about the Olympics, and I understand all of them, right? Except for like some of the stuff that was like silly jingoistic American kind of like you know, oh China. But some of that stuff really did get out of control, you know. Like it was, uh, it, it was not just China; it was also Russia. I was watching the. Did you watch like the? the, the I the mean, I feel thing? like some of that was. It was such an egregious setup, though, with the Russian sports team. It was pretty hard not to indulge in some of that. 
Not to defend Mike Tirico and the NBC team, but... (laughs) This is the teenager who was caught with doping. Yeah, but the entire construction of the Russians entering the Olympics as a non-Russian entity Uh is so absurd. No, it's it's totally absurd. At that point, what do you do, you know? It's totally absurd. It was like, basically, they said, okay, Russia, uh, we're going to call you... We're just going to rebrand you. (laughs) You you Because you guys cheat so much. And so uh, (laughs) you're you're now ROC. And then they're like, oh, wow, you cheated again? Okay, listen, you know, we're going to let her skate, but, you know, this is the last warning. We don't want to have to go through another rebrand again. Um, I don't know. I mean, they should probably, I don't know. I mean, they honestly, I, I, this was was the last, I think this is the last, I think this is the last straw for me. I just don't. For the Winter Olympics anymore. or all Olympics? I just don't want to watch the Olympics anymore. You know we're going to be watching it again, I know. Jake. We, I don't I believe this We at go all. through this every time. <laughs> That's the point. I don't even like... Uh, Tammy, okay. Uh, you need to back up from your microphone a little bit or something. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, we have a lot to talk about. None of it is as fun as the Olympics. Um, and I don't know what the order should be. But I think the first thing that we should talk about is, uh, you know, what's happening... Or what happened in New York City a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, and with the and and then I, I guess like now at this point, it's been a couple of months ago, right? With uh, Michelle Go, Yeah. And, um, and these murders of, of Asian women. And Tammy, I don't know. I think we should just start. What, like, what, what's your what, what's your headspace on this right now? Yeah. I mean, I just wanted the three of us to process it a little bit. I think with the Christina Yana Lee thing, it was maybe hit a lot of us harder in New York City. I don't know, I guess in in the Asian community, just because it happened in Chinatown on a block that I've spent so much time on. I know a lot of my friends have. And the fact that she was murdered in her own home, you know, the sort of setup of it, of being followed into your apartment is a kind of, I don't know, it's like something that your parents warn you about as a a young woman, you know? Like if there is an equivalent of the like sit a kid down talk, like that black people talk about in their community. This is what women go through with their parents. And this happened to her. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff at play though. I mean, obviously on this show, we've been really wary of some of the calls for carceral solutions and hate crimes legislation. Um, Are these two really high profile murders, hate crimes? And they haven't been declared as such by the prosecutors or investigators yet. Um, It seems like they were both, the crimes were committed by really, disturbed men who have been in the system. So there's just a lot of confused and confusing feelings. I think there's also this dimension of Asian people kind of self-appointing themselves as spokespeople for the community, standing alongside Eric Adams and other figures, who these people who don't necessarily have any sort of like community organizing history, you know, basically saying this is what the Asian community wants. Who's, so, I don't well, who's an example of that? Yeah. So in the recent Times Square rally for Christina Lee, and I haven't been in New York for a while, obviously, I'm heading back in a few days. Um, there were some sort of business types who basically started fundraising for this rally and came out and said, OK, we're speaking for the Asian community. They were standing alongside electeds and cops to basically say we need more prosecutions, you know, some attention to kind of like, oh, we need mental health solutions too. But usually those are driven through police. You know, so right. I think I, for me, I just have a lot of confused emotions and a lot of hurt and and some fear, you know, just being kind of around in, in the city I've been in for 20 years. So 
yeah, I know you guys both lived in New York City for a long time too, and was just wondering how how you guys were processing these events. Uh, Andy, um, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's this is like this is one of those things where you like you read the headlines and you don't want to. I don't know. You like you just don't want to think too hard about it because it's like such mm-hmm. a you know like both of them seem like very random quote unquote, like the first one, Michelle go especially. Right. But even the second one was like, there are a lot of, uh, it seems like the guy, uh, his name was Nash, uh, had this, had these intentions. Right. But like, it, there doesn't seem to be a prior relationship between the two. It just seems like she didn't close the door all the way right. in her apartment. So it's hard to, I think the, the, the thing that most observers are struggling with is like, to, to what degree can you ascribe this like a systematic, cause or a systematic pattern um because i don't know to me as someone who doesn't study this closely just kind of it, it does seem plausible to say like these are not racially motivated these are random etc but then like i don't know we've been doing this for like a year now you know and uh if you if you look at these statistics and then you think look well i don't know how like reliable statistics are from the police what statistics and, like you know hunt two to three hundred percent spike in crime against oh, a- yeah. against asian victims the last years or two i mean it seems like it's you know it's hard to ignore it but then it's like well these individuals we don't know like the person who right. pushed michelle go on the subway was like yelling to, to the reporter that he is god or something you know it's like this is like he might have like racial animus but he's also crazy you know so it's it's hard to say like well this is what everyone feels like this is how the country feels about asians um i do think it's interesting though that i, I guess i'm curious uh, in terms of I noticed as well, Tammy, that starting with Christina Lee's landlord, right, who's I think Chinese American, mm-hmm. started, you know, started the push to say like this is about woke, you know, criminal reform policies and all that. Um, I think there was a rally or some event in like Fort Lee or somewhere in Jersey. Um, it's one of these Asian communities in like northern Jersey as well. Not, not so much about criminal reform, but about like anti-Asian violence and how governments mm-hmm. have to protect us. So it's happening. She's from there, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Um, but also, yeah, she like, was from you know, Fort Lee, right? Mm-hmm. Or from Palisades. And she'd only moved to the city like a year ago. So, yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, in terms of the coverage, do you feel like, do you all feel like the new, like, I, I know this is an unfair comparison, but if you think about the coverage of what happened in Atlanta, everyone was just so quick to, to like put this into like a racial, uh, even though we don't, we still don't really know very much about that guy, uh, into a, like a racial violence, anti Asian, um, box whereas in this i feel like people are not do not want to do that um and i think you know there's one clear reason why which is like the guy in atlanta was white and these people in new york were were black so i think people are very wary of jumping to those conclusions yeah i mean that's like sort of the question overhanging some some of this not all of it you know is a question about uh how do you frame it when a person of color attacks another person of color Right. And um, to what extent are you willing to ascribe racial animus to that? And then at what point are you going to say, like, okay, what's going on? Right. And that um, I don't know. I looked into a lot of this when I was in uh, when I was writing about the Visha, you know, um, in San Francisco, that the Thai man, Ranak, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to, Ratanapakti, right? Visha mm-hmm. uh, Ratanapakti. And, you know, like I had remembered that when I lived in San Francisco between 2004 and 2010, 2005, 2010, something like that, right? 
but there are a lot of these attacks and you know, it includes somebody being uh, old lady being shoved and killed on, in front of a muni train it, it involved all sorts of attacks right and that there was almost identical headlines back then not the national question but locally right like i think that um and then if you look at the actual number of attacks in san francisco of old asian people it it didn't really go up all that much but it was also a huge problem in 2010 this isn't to minimize it you know it's actually to just say that like it was problem 2010 problem now it's been a problem the entire time Mm -hmm. and so um and these, the, in San Francisco and the Bay Area, most of these did sort of interface with this question about mental health, right? The people who, yeah. um, who, who did these attacks all could be classified as mentally ill, except for one sort of strong art robbery in Oakland uh, that happened during the wave, you know, like whenever, like about a, what, it's a year ago now, I guess, right? Um, but that was just like, a, it was a, you know, somebody just didn't care that this person was old and robbed him and then killed him. You know, um, but I think that uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the question about mental health, right, has got to be really at the center of this. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think that we're in this terrible place where nobody really knows what to say about any of it, except for sort of outrage and like solemnity. And I don't blame anybody for their response to it, because I certainly don't have a particularly strong response either, you know, outside of basic outrage and, you know, fear, I guess. But like, uh, um, I don't know, there's, there's, there's no real clean way to go about it, right? Like, uh, I think that if all of these had been like somebody wearing a MAGA hat, you know, like <laughs> Jesse Smollett or something like that, and that all of this had been in that sort of way, we could ascribe a very clean narrative to it. You know, we could say that like Donald Trump kicked up anti-Asian hatred or if it was all people being like if it was like, you know, like some version of Vincent Chin where it was like anti it was sinophobic in a way or it's just like you communist or something like that. (laughs) And we could describe a clean narrative to it. But because they are senseless in a way, because these are people who are mentally ill, there's no narrative that you can ascribe to it outside of the fear that it produces and that that is not something that you can really act upon in any type of way except to call for more incarceration of mentally ill people and to call for more police presence in these areas. It's the only response that you can have that's reasonable, right? Because otherwise you're basically saying, well, we like these conditions have created this, right? Like I think everyone will will admit that there are some conditions that have created these types of situations. I think that some people will say, "I, I actually don't know myself, but I can just say like, look, there's something going on with like mentally ill people attacking Asian people, right? Like, I think that that's, uh, like, that's a okay conclusion to uh, draw from any of this. And so then what's the only conclusion that you can come from it? We're just like, well, we need to somehow like protect Asian people from mentally ill people. And then there's only really one solution that's like viable at this point, politically within this current, you know, way of thinking about these types of things, which is why I think that's basically where everybody's going to end up concluding whether they can say it or not. Now, I think that there's probably a lot of people who are just not going to say that, right? Because they understand that it's a political third rail or that it doesn't reflect their politics. But it's, I don't know, it's, I don't think that, I think in the past year, like sort of figuring out a non-carceral approach 
or figuring out a way to say like we shouldn't ascribe hate crime legislation or whatever like that it's feeling more and more like a like a outlier position if that makes sense right it feels more and more like it's not going to really reflect anyone's politics except for the people who are who believe in these sort of politics um i think that's true for all i think that's true for all of the politics that we felt during the george floyd uprising was momentarily popular Right. So that was a time when defund and abolitionist takes were suddenly feeling more mainstream. Right. And that moment seems to have passed. And so there's a coincidence between the kind of deflation and backlash to that movement and these really high profile crimes against Asian women in public and private spaces. And so I think it's so difficult to entangle. And I think it's not just in the Asian community where we're feeling like that it's very hard to articulate something other than this. And also just as I think Americans growing up and living in this system, it's every, every solution is always funneled through a law enforcement response in our right. society. You know, it's so ingrained that it does take a lot of imagination, I think, and work to try to escape that. The mental health thing, I remember in um, our discord there, we had a very lively debate around this question of like, is there something, you know, quote unquote, atmospheric or sort of ambient? you know, when there are sort of trends of feeling against a community that then are somehow absorbed by people who are living on the edge, you know, whether it's people with severe mental illness or not. And, you know, and I think like, yeah, it does feel right now that there's something going on where, and, and can we acknowledge the fact that people are picking up on some sort of vibe that is like anti-Asian and then acting on that in some sort of more or less conscious way without then saying, and therefore we need to lock up these people. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be, uh, Andy, what do you think? Um, I do think, I think another thing that has to also be mentioned, of course, is like, this is besides, in addition to race, right. This is about like two professional women. And then these are homeless people who by definition have nothing. Right. So there's also like a class dimension also, which is also uh, really, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if the yeah. second. I don't know what the housing situation was for Christina Lee's killer. The the killer of Michelle Guo had been Guo had been identified as homeless. But yeah, right. I think I think the one for Lee as well. But but these um, aren't like these aren't like crimes of you know opportunity or trying to steal bread or something like that, right? Like, sure, but are, like, like but you don't but you don't think it. But there's nothing that. There's nothing that suggests that this is racially motivated any more than it suggests this is class yeah. motivated as well. It's not like they declared they were doing this for race. Right, for but reasons. they didn't declare like, you know, like, oh, you have, why do you have a nice apartment now I'm on the street? Right. right? Like so it's right. sort of senseless. Right. So which but is they, why I'm saying I think these are this is just as valid of reason or just as valid a way of looking at it. Uh, and they should be maybe looked at together. But I don't think like I guess is what I'm saying is I think the racial dimension is you know, you can see a pattern, but it's it's hard to conflate racial effects or racial patterns with like racial motivation, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? This is like racecraft, like this is like inverting the cause with the effect. Well, um, the, yeah. I think the class thing plays into it too, because the two professional women, obviously liberals, you know, who are the most vocal on this stuff are identifying mostly with these women because they look and seem like us, you know, yeah. sort of thing. And yeah, so exactly. I think yeah. that is definitely at play. Right, there, I think like there's a definitely a class dimension or... to the 
to the response. I don't the think there's a class dimension to the crimes necessarily. I mean, the crimes are senseless, right? Like the response, I think we can talk about. But then, Tammy, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no. I, I, I mean, I think I, I guess I just thought Andy was basically saying that it reflects the way we read these looking back, you know? Yeah. But I, I, I even think like, Jay, if you're saying that there's nothing inherently class, there's no class dimension to the crime itself. Are you saying there's inherently a racial dimension to the crime itself? No, I think they're totally like, I don't know how to even process okay. them through any sort of narrative. It's senseless. Yeah. You know, like um, somebody just goes up and shoves someone in front of a train. Like, how do you make sense of it? You know? Sure. Okay. Um, uh, it's, I think that if you want to talk, of course, there's like a evacuation of mental health services. The people live totally in not even precarious. They live in, you know, completely inhumane situations because, you know, they have mental health breakdowns and that's that's all questions of class right but right. like that that's like a that's just like a big problem right we're talking about yeah, the yeah, specific yeah. thing yeah. right and then the specific thing it's difficult i mean i don't know like i think that uh and then in terms of the racial dimension it's just like i think that it's basically whether you believe it or you don't you know and right. um i think that most asian people right now believe it right like uh and i mm -hmm. think that it takes a lot of kind of willful I don't think it's denial, but I think you have to really detach yourself emotionally to think of it in any other way, right? I mean, this is, yeah, there's a lot of people at this point, and yeah, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I want to, Tammy, I want you to talk a bit. I don't want to put you on the spot as the woman here, but like, there's clearly a gendered issue mm -hmm. or part of this, right? And I saw that Nicole Chung, who's a writer that I like quite a bit, wrote a piece about her 14 year old daughter, and you know, like how what's she going to say to her, you know, like, um, and that there are a lot of, I mean, between from Atlanta to here, but like I said, long history of Asian women being in these precarious positions where, you know, they're seen really not as human, right. Seen as seen as property in a lot of ways. And, um, that obviously has an element to, to all of this. So I don't know, do you want to, what, what do you think about this? Like in terms of gender? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, to me, it remind what's going on, especially with these two murders. The the discourse resembles some of what we saw back in June. I don't know if you guys remember, but there is a woman in London called Sarah Everhard that had been murdered, and it was later discovered that she'd been married by a cop in England. But it led to a discourse among in a lot of feminist communities where women were basically saying, "I've never felt safe on the street. This is exactly my worst fear." Um, you know, I women just are unsafe period. And I, like I, in our community at, at Lux, um, and I think among socialist feminists, we, there was also a sort of critical commentary on that, which is, is that kind of, is that true? Does that reflect our feelings? Are women inherently victims? Like, what do you do about that? If you were trying to, you know, further a politics that's actually, you know, socialist feminist, you know, what does that mean? And I think, so I've been thinking a lot about that since Christina Lee's murder, because, I have to say that in the time I've been in New York during the pandemic with the infrastructure sort of feeling like it's collapsing a little bit in the city, I have felt sometimes where I didn't feel that safe, which is really strange for me. You know, I've never really had that experience in 20 years of living in the city. Um, is that racialized? I don't know, maybe, but I it almost just felt more like a woman's problem, if that yeah. makes sense. That, right. you know, again, it, it sort of taps into this kind of worst fear, like crime show, you know, imagery that that you sort of ward your, yourself, your 
your body yeah. against. Um, what would I say to my friends and my, and like, if I had a child, what would I say to a daughter? Like, I don't know. I mean, I do think I was taught to act in a certain way in public just to be really aware as a woman, knowing that that is somewhat unsafe. I might make certain decisions at this point that I wouldn't have made a few years ago. For instance, like if I'm coming home really late at night on the subway, I might take a cab. I might have somebody come meet me, which are things I haven't really ever thought about before. Yeah. Right. And the sad part is that, well, not sad, and, and but you know, Christine and Lee took a cab, right? Like, um, that's right. That was like something that yeah. I saw people discussing. Right. So you feel, you do feel different in the city then. Yeah. What do you mean do. when you I say, say I do. when you say the infrastructure is fault? Like, what do you mean by like yeah, buildings are falling so, apart or like police? Or... <laughs> well, that the subways became extremely unreliable, as did the buses. Mm, you know, so okay. there was some. I mean, I think during the pandemic, with you know, obviously the revenue issues, people yeah. fleeing the city, um, there was a lot less attention to kind of our public services and stuff. So, you know, I mean, I think you could make a sort of like welfare state critique that intersects right. with issues of public safety because they are intertwined. And then where does the money to quote unquote fix the system go? It goes yeah. to however many thousands of cops Eric Adams now wants to deploy to the subway system, right? right. But again, yeah. as Jay was just saying, she also took a cab home. She was thinking in terms of safety and yet there was this issue of this man coming into the door. So, yeah, yeah I think it's... I have this like sort of niggling, these niggling feelings that like I don't want to have and they're sort of like not politically aligned with who yeah. I am, you know, and, and so I, I feel like I'm, it, I've been kind of trying to process but, that. But it seems to me like what you're saying is like, these are structural issues that have nothing or they don't, they have something to do, but they shouldn't be conflated with like one's individual sense of safety. You can feel unsafe, but also believe that, you know, no one should be mistreated and society should take care of everyone. Um, For sure. And I have to say, I mean, my fundamental position on carceral responses and hate, the hate crimes logic has not changed even with these these recent spate of crimes. And like, for instance, right now, the Ahmed Arbery case is is going on in federal court. The the killer of Ahmed Arbery Arbery had gone through state court already and had been sentenced. But now this is a federal prosecution that is specifically aiming at the hate crimes piece. And this is a modern day lynching of the kind that you know, we would think hate crimes are sort of designed, hate crimes laws are designed to address. You're talking and about, it, just to clarify, you're talking about yeah, the Arbery. You're not talking about the, you're not talking about like the federal government lynching the people who killed Arbery. You're, I'm talking, talk, yeah, I'm talking yeah, about okay. the three white to clear men up any, who lynched. To, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. To clear like, up wow, any, okay. yeah. Sorry cross racial, cross it racial only confused me for a second. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then I was like, oh wait, that's not what you're saying. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. I think, I think any way you read that that crime, basically right. it was a, a lynching, right? It was yeah. three white men. Oh, for sure. You know, so we're yeah. in the classical framework of what we think about as a Southern lynching, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you kind of look at that, if we can say that that is sort of like the epitome of or the kind of archetypal hate crime, then what do these, you know, crimes against Asian women look like? You know, and I think it's much murkier. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not equivalent. It, right. it doesn't seem, you know, and I think also we're in an environment right now where because of this pattern of harassment and in some cases physical violence that we've seen against Asian communities, we're sort of primed to see every single crime that happens, no matter how senseless or random against an Asian person as part of that. But every day there are crimes against people of all different races right. that are occurring that are just as impactful in their communities, you know? And so how do we look at like an attack on a, you know, a Latino guy who's, commuting to work right now. Right. Is that a hate, you know, so I think so much of it is, 
based on these kinds of lenses that we're in. But of course, we are in this time where yeah. it's true that we're seeing people in our community suffering. I mean, Jay, do you want go ahead. to? No, go ahead. I mean, I kind of wanted to, not to like shift it all the way away, but just more big picture. I've been thinking about this in the context of Philly. There's all this talk these days, you know, obviously Larry Krasner's the DA and mm-hmm. so there's just constant uh, discussion about like, are we going to, are we becoming too, has Krasner become too lax? There's, you know, records, homicides, you know, crime statistics in Philly worse since like the nineties and the seventies, depending on what you're looking at. Um, and I was thinking about this in terms of, and it's like, I, I probably have like modified my behavior slightly. Like I live in, a relatively safe area, but I think about like, you know, uh, you read enough stories, you think about like, where should I go in the city and what times should I go? I think that's, you know, I don't think that's really? wrong to, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Philly is a huge city. So, um, is it? But, I mean, there's like places, it's that, very like, spread out. There's places that are like miles uh, away that are technically still mm-hmm. part of Philly. Yeah, you can scoot up a little bit closer than like, <laughs> but I was thinking about this, this article that was trying to take a sort of, it was from ProPublica, it was last year. And I guess it was sort of like the non-carceral attempt to explain all this. And a lot of what it talked about was during COVID, especially we had places like rec centers and schools and libraries and social services that would be available to quote unquote ask at risk populations that basically closed down and they went virtual and like nobody, you know, virtual Mm -hmm. attendance is lower and all that stuff. So that the explanation was sort of like, you know, these quote unquote would be people who commit violence, um, they, other stuff has to be available for them to do, right? To to prevent, to to kind of foreclose that, and that's when. It, so rather than like cops or kind of preventing mm-hmm. it through law enforcement, you have to actually like provide for people and provide for society. And you know, I know that doesn't actually resolve what you do or what how do you think about these particular murders in New York City because it kind of seems like there's no good solution. It's either do nothing, which nobody is happy about, or you know, ramp up legal enforcement, which, you know, has all, all sorts of issues that, that we know. And I do think that the, you know, and based on my sort of like superficial understanding of like abolitionist literature and abolitionist uh, thinking, it's the solution is not to just do nothing, quote unquote, right? Uh, with regards to like, or like pretend violence is not happening. It's more about like, what are the alternative Definitely. avenues or solutions, economic, social, economic, right? Um, the, the, you know, the story that is told in Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book about California, Golden Gulag, is who are these people who are suddenly being imprisoned in the 1980s are basically people who had jobs 10 years yeah. ago and then they lost their jobs. Right. And yeah. so there's there's definitely a massive like social economic dimension as opposed to just like do nothing versus imprison everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, on that point, Andy, let me read a bit from story. I think it's in New, maybe it's Bergen County record or something. But it says, on Monday, New York uh, Mayor Eric Adams was asked during a news conference whether Nash was a poster child, Nash being the person who shoved or who killed Christina, like, for failures of the state's bails laws. Although Adams wouldn't go that far, he said the case deserved attention because Nash should not have been on the street. Princeton resident <laughs> Ying Lu, 49, commutes to New York City twice a week for a job as an NYU professor and said she's on guard as well. She used to take a New Jersey transit train to Penn Station, then the subway to Greenwich Village. She's lately changed her commute to take New Jersey Transit into Newark and then a path train to the village, a longer commute, but one that feels safer. New York City public transit makes me sad, she said. Seeing many homeless people, it's very, very sad. For that reason, I am avoiding it. 
Um, so it seems like a lot of people are changing their behavior a bit, you know? I don't know. I, like, it's hard to hear all of this and not see it as, a, as an indictment of, um, of, of lax policing, right? And I think, look, I am not reflecting my own police here. It's just like people, this is how people's brains work because as you yeah. said, Tammy, the only, I, the only solution that we have in our drilled into our brains is more police. <laughs> And so, like, we can't think of other things, right? Like, I mean, Andy, the stuff you say about community rec centers, stuff like that, that's said a lot, you know? And I think that it's not just, like, hardcore abolitionists who say that. I think it's basically, like, a lot of the progressive, uh, a lot of progressives, you know, say that, right? Like, basically anyone who, if you voted for, like, Maya Wiley, for example, you believe in that type of stuff. You believe in violence interrupters. You believe in those types of interventions outside of only carceral solutions. I guess the thing that, you know, if you're asking from a bigger picture and, you know, I live in the Bay Area where this is the only topic of conversation, Chase of Bodine and, mm-hmm. and yeah. crime. It's the and homelessness. And then for like three weeks, it was about like the school board recall. <laughs> and now it's right back to Chase. <laughs> right. Like it's the only thing anyone talks about. And it goes from the press and it goes to people standing around in soccer practices. It goes to, you know, people everywhere right it goes to like the communities of asian people immigrants like uh latino people in oakland like this is the conversation you know it's about policing it's about it's about um it's about you know the san francisco prosecutor who you know is not my prosecutor right but it is he's not the berkeley prosecutor he's not the alameda county prosecutor he's not the contra costa county uh he's not the san mateo county prosecutor but everyone in this area puts it all on one one figure in the same way that I'm sure everyone in Philly puts it on Krasner. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I don't know from a larger perspective. And I think, you know, like it's just very difficult to see how this survives, you know? And I think that it was like, a, I think that like, I, be, I agree with Chesa on almost everything. Right. And yet it just seems like it's either bad timing or maybe we're just really wrong. <laughs> it's It's like okay well you know is it was it bad timing that all this happened during an unprecedented spike in gun sales right an unprecedented pandemic that comes every hundred years and the psychological effects that it has and that we have two guys chase and krasner right who are national figures at this point um Mm -hmm. trying to steer these cities through now you can say everything that you want about how you know, crime is actually down in these places, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you take it in aggregate, but people do care about murders, you know, like they care about murders and like, you can't force people to not care about murders, right? Like it's not a, it's not a political strategy to just start saying, don't, you know, you should worry more about property crime than murders. It's like, people are just, I don't care about, like, I care about being killed. You know, like if someone breaks in my car, it's okay. You know? Um, and so uh, my sense is that it's bad luck. I really, I really do believe that it's bad luck that this happened. Like, I don't think that it's, co- I think that the pandemic is way more causative than like, a, right. you know, people being out yeah. on bail. And yet, you know, it's just part of the bad luck. And maybe it's not bad luck is that like, you know, every single one of these guys has like, you know, like the right, not even the right, the center. I would say even like at this point, like far into like the center left, like towards the left side, right? They all just point to, they say, well, this guy was out. He could have been in jail if he had been locked up for any number of these things that he, you know, yeah. was 
Like there, like he shouldn't have been bailed out. Like he did this, this, and this in the past. And it's tough, you know. Yeah. Like I don't. I think that uh, that's why Adams, you know, has become such like a national figure in a way because like he, I think he offers liberals this path that they really, really want. They want a person mm-hmm. of color, you know. They want, um, they want them, and they want the person of color to basically reflect the things that they want. Right? I mean, is- has Adams signaled the direction he's going to take with this case? I don't know if you've been um, following that. Part oh man, I had to, he's going to throw the three books at this person, you know. But just in general, like, is it also going to lead like policy changes and? So the new DA in the area is Alvin Bragg, who is yeah. sort of considered a progressive black prosecutor. Um, and so, I mean, he's been really supportive of bail reform and bail reform of the kind that Bragg has been pushing is completely irrelevant to the Christina Lee case. But Eric Adams has been trying to use it, you know. Mm. Um, I think Bragg is going to be under a lot of pressure to go through with the reforms that he had promised. Um, And I don't know, you know, hopefully he'll be able to stay independent from, from uh, Adams, but I think it's quite hard. Yeah. So like Bragg's thing was that like, unless like under a certain threshold, nobody goes to jail. Right. Um, Like nobody can go out on bail. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, you know, the other thing that, um, there's a there's a couple other reforms that he had put into place, which I don't think Adams has quibbled with as much, but Adams is very sort of just had been against the bail thing from the from the beginning. So I think we shall see. I mean, again, I don't think in either the case of Go or Lee there has yet been a mention that they will be prosecuted as hate crimes. So right now they're just unfortunate, just awful. I mean, wouldn't the burden of murders? Essentially. Yeah, without knowing like. I mean, you would know better. Like, isn't wouldn't the burden of proof for that be like super high? Like, how can they to prove that it was a hate crime? Yeah, like, I it's mean, not, usually, it's not like the Arbery case, right? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it, I think, and I think that's why, like, you know, from the get go, it doesn't seem like there's a there there, right? Because yeah. there has to be some sort of, you know, articulation of motive and intent around the hate, yeah. right? right? So you right, have to right. be screaming some sort of, you know, obscenity or right. have some sort of pattern and practice on your Facebook, right? Of So, and we're not seeing that in these cases. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean people aren't feeling like they're connected to this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to believe that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it, I, I just find it because it's difficult to pin down anything except like a general atmospheric feeling like we were like people were talking about. Right. I think that it's, I think that sort of standing up and telling Asian women to not worry about this, that it's not racial. Like, I, I think that's awful. You know, like, I just think that like, this is maybe there's a time later when things are more clear (laughs) where you can make that argument. But right now is not that time. You know, I feel like Asian women can say it to one another. You know? Right. No, I think that's true. <laughs> you can, yeah. you know? And I'm it's glad like, we. It's like I'm your special way that I can't say. <laughs> yeah, Andy and Jay. I don't know, but. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I like. I'm much more on the side of like you know. I I do think that there's some reason for all these attacks happening, right? But I think that um, and and I do think that pe- there's a lot of anti-Asian sentiment out there right now. And I think it does get extrapolated in certain ways that we don't expect, right? And then saying that because we can't prove it because a person didn't have a Facebook filled with racial slurs, right. it's silly. But that's also right. why 
that's that's also why litigation of hate crimes is silly, you know, because it requ it requires exactly. that type of silly thing, right? So it's yeah. you have two sides of the same argument. Um, I don't know. The last thing I wanted to talk about this is that I don't. I'm very interested in this response, Tammy, where like you feel a little bit more scared, right, in the city, right? Like, I mean, would you? And that yet yeah, you, I think, out of the three of us, are by not by far, but I think out of the three of us, you are the most learned and studied in sort of abolitionist ideas, right? Um, um, <laughs> um, is there, is there like a, have you been thinking twice? Have, have you been rethinking it at all? Mm. No, because I think, as you guys were saying, like abolitionism is not one or two policy decisions. It's right. like a whole worldview, you know? Um, I was seeing a couple friends yesterday who are really active in abolitionist work. And one of them was talking about framing it as a lens, you know, like you are, you are encountering different decisions in your life and positions that you want to take. And you're thinking, is this going to put me and my world in a more or less carceral direction? You know, right. or is this leading to a more liberatory direction? And that seems kind of woolly, but, you know, I think that that is helpful because as Andy was saying, when he was talking about the welfare programs. It's sort of like we would need to remake so much of our society to actually be able to envision a world right. where people can live healthfully that it's, yeah. it's like a complete challenge to basically everything we do in our lives every day. <laughs> and that's so freaking hard. And it's not like people who are living, you know, in poverty and trying to take care of their kids and go to work or sitting around trying to theorize like how to live their best abolitionist selves. Like, you know, and so I yeah. think that's the work of, like organizing in communities to try to be like, how do we get people to that point where we can have these discussions? And, um, but I, yeah, I think, I think the mental health thing is very, very difficult because on the one hand you want to be able to say like, okay, pe people with mental health, like uh, with mental illness, there are still humans with volition. There's still people who are in our society, you know, and they make choices and we have to hold people accountable for their choices. But what does that mean? On the other hand, um, you know, I don't think you can say that somebody who has severe mental illness is has the sort of motive and intent that would be necessary to say that this is a hate crime. Right. right so right. I think from a criminal yeah. legal perspective or sort of criminal policy perspective, that's extremely difficult. And I don't know what the answer to that is, because it's not, as you were saying, Jay, reassuring to especially an Asian female public to be like, well, they had mental illness. So, like, it doesn't matter what you're feeling. Right. Right. You, know, you can't right. say that either. No, it, nor should you, I don't think. Nor I mean, should you. But I mean, how do you, if like, you're an abolitionist, address that? Asshole to somebody yeah, like who's that's scared, you know? A dick and move. Like, really. You know? <laughs> um, I think that my my sense of it is that, like, in terms of the mental health thing, just because, you know, it's something that we talk about here in the Bay Area quite a bit because, you know, I don't know, it's a really bad homeless problem here. And um, a lot of it is the worst, the iterations that get people the most upset. It's not people panhandling, right? Like, like nobody really even panhandles around here, you know? It's more just people acting violently on the streets, screaming. I don't know, I've seen it myself, you know? Like, uh, I had a couple, right before the pandemic, I had to get between a guy and um, an elderly woman that he was just ch sort of walking around, following mm. and screaming at, you know? And the woman didn't do anything, you know? That's just mm. somebody who's very mentally ill. And so the explanations are all over the place, right? Like you have the super meth theory, right? Which is very popular around here. Like uh, Michael, Sh uh, Michael Schellenberger, you know, wrote that book, San Francisco, which I think is 
gross, you know, um, uh, really just saying basically like, you know, the city has given up on mental health. It's given up on everything. We just have this like population of drug addicted zombies walking around in San Francisco. It's like going to go in the toilet because of this. Right. Like, and that we need to, you know, he doesn't really offer too many solutions, but it's pretty clear what he wants. He wants like, uh, you know, basically everybody to be put in a treatment system that's going to be carceral and by any sort of definition and that they can't get out until they you know kick their habit right which these people are not going to kick these habits you know like like the the especially something like fentanyl right you have almost no chance right like the chance is like five percent maybe something like that where you where you eventually are fine and so you're in and out of treatment programs and you know like i think that people's patience with it is is over because you know they they see it with like there's not like you can talk about all the statistics you want most of the people in in the bay area are affected i think by just seeing something and you know like that has an immense amount of power sure and uh that doesn't mean that they're right you know it just means that they've seen something right and then that's that informs their um feelings about it but i just think that the problem at this point like you were saying tammy is that there's so little political imagination left in the united states amongst the population including people like us who are relatively comfortable, have like access to, I don't know, I get, I write for the New York Times, like what do I not have access to in terms of information, you know? The political imagination is so limited at this point that we can't even figure out what to do about people who are like violent and mentally ill on the street. (laughs) You know, like nobody has a solution, right? Um, Outside of locking them all up, right? And like, that's basically it. Like we have one option left. Um, and it's just like hoping that things do, like this don't keep happening. Like I'm, I'm talking about if you're coming from an abolitionist lens, sure. right? Yeah. You just have to basically hope that stuff like this doesn't happen for long enough where like somebody like Chase can get elected, right? Or somebody like Krasner can get elected. And the, the thing that happened is basically like the worst case scenario happened for both of them. And um, I don't know. It's, 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 it's just tough to see how these places don't all just turn into New York under Giuliani, right? Like, oh, man, I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, right? How, how could it not? I mean, it's, I don't know. I think that's what the public wants in a lot of ways. And um, now I don't think that it's because of this is, you know, I don't think it's because of, of, of Christina Lee. I don't think it's because Michelle go, right. I actually just think that most people don't care if it's Asian people, you know? I mean, that seems cynical, but I just think that's true, you know? The Asian community cares deeply, right? Or, um, But uh, I don't think that's, like, what's going to trigger it, like, right? Like, this isn't going to be, like, a Central Park Five with, with, um, uh, with I, I don't know. I, I just don't really... Mm. I don't think that it's going to be that the impetus, but there's like so there's just this this rise in murders is like in these cities is you know yeah. it's not gone unremarked yeah. upon and not and unnoticed. You mean on like on a, on a smaller scale, you could see like I could think about like in the future, looking back, someone could write the history of this stuff as you know 2020 was the summer of George Floyd, 2021, 2022 was like a reaction um, right. mobilized around these kind of right spectacular cases involving Asian victims. Um, right. Also, CRT back anti-CRT backlash. <laughs> right. right. Like, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, yeah. The fact that it's all happening at once, I think, is so makes it so difficult for our people with our perspective and um, 
I mean, I guess like one thing I've been challenging myself is like, so we talk a lot about like this, like people, like homeless people who are mentally ill and they seem like this kind of specter, the most fearsome specter, like right now in our society. And I was thinking about people in my life who have severe mental illness that I've known and who, but who are very comfortable, who are middle-class or upper middle-class who get care, you know, and it's like, they, they, because they have treatment, because they have homes, because they are like in a society, you know, they are okay and they're not hurting people. Yeah. But Um, would you, would you say like mental health is just like, I mean, I don't know, there's like a whole debate, right? But like social conditions versus like natural conditions, right? Like I'm sure a lot of these people. Yeah. um, In terms of reversing like the correlation. I, I do kind of feel like mental health. I remember this like came up when. Bernie would talk about this when people ask him about like gun control and he would obviously dodge it because he's from Vermont and doesn't want to control guns. And he would kind of use <laughs> mental health as sort of catch all for like, why does violence I happen? See. And I do think it's, we are kind of putting mental health into a black box in these conversations uh, because it feels safer than like mm-hmm. race or class or something. But, um, you know, I think, I don't know. I, I, I'm not an expert on this stuff at all, right? Yeah. But I tend to think like a lot of this stuff has to, and I know it's like not practical and helpful for everyday people or to think about politics on a day-to-day level, but like taking the bird's eye view of a lot of this stuff, it feels like, as you were saying, it's like it's so hard to imagine a different world because these conditions have been building up for like decades, you know, in terms of this country. What has happened with incarceration in this country the last several decades is the result of like, I think, a huge like gutting of welfare and just like egalitarian policies that would in another universe these people would just have like jobs and would just be like totally fine in society right not all of them but like i think a lot of them would and so one thing that i've kind of noticed yeah go ahead one thing i've thought about in terms of not being like central to this abolitionist discourse but kind of encountering it is that i did feel it does feel like you know when i was reading like gilmore's book it really struck me like this is a book about this is a socialist book, right? Or socialist project. But I do kind of think that gets separated in a lot of abolitionist discourse. And it does, uh, I'm not saying like you do this, right? But like a lot of people tend to say like, it's all about prisons or prisons alone without thinking about like the conditions, mm, I see. Mm-hmm. which would put people at, you know, at, uh, to be targeted, to be put into prison or to, you know, be desperate enough to commit crimes to put them into prison. Um and so I don't know, like, I don't know if Krasner or Bowdoin can do anything. You know, I think they, like you said, Jay, like it's bad timing, but it's like, it's bad timing in the sense that it's COVID, but it's also like bad timing in terms of like gutting of welfare and widening inequality for decades that I think are, mm-hmm. unless those get reversed, you're going to have these same dilemmas of do nothing or putting everyone in prison um, at, right. at, at nauseum. Yeah. I mean, I think the gun part of it is interesting. Like, there's so many more guns now than there were two years ago. Yeah. And I think that that has some effect on this. Mm -hmm. Although I don't know if it has... I don't think it explains everything or even close to everything, but I think it is an input that should be considered is just how many more guns there are. Um, But, you know, I I think it's... uh, I think over... I don't know. I, I just, like... It's been sad to watch the backlash for the over what happened two summers ago. It seems like the Democrat Party has fully embraced the backlash and is going to, in fact, be the vanguard of the backlash, right? Like the, um, and it's basically just negotiating with like the GOP on where to go, right? Like, uh, 
you know, there's no real negotiation around. It's basically the, the last thing that we're trying to fight for is for them to not ban every book by a black author <laughs> or a gay author in, in America. You know, like that's basically where, where we're at. But the rest of the yeah. scale back is totalic. Or, or, I'm sorry, it's total, right? Like totalic. Uh, totalic. <laughs> Nobody's arguing for defunding the police. Nobody's arguing for yeah. uh, prison reform. Basically, London Breed, like London Breed is my barometer for a lot of this stuff, right? We can talk about her very soon, but like she's thrown Chase under the bus too, you know? And so like, you know, London Breed is a Bloomberg-backed, like business-backed, big-time Democrat that has a big future in in national politics, I think, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she's very, very savvy, if nothing else. And you even see it with with, uh, Jayapal sort of, distancing herself from the squad for example right oh, she like, is yeah. oh yeah, uh, on yeah this question yeah. Hmm. yeah so um you know you see these sort of very savvy operators in politics who used to who i mean london breed never was right but like uh at least with jayapal there's a moment where she's sort of playing footsie with the left and with with the Bernie campaign and with with aoc and with the squad and you see sort of a you know like a pullback from that Wait, and t- Jayapal from oh. Seattle, from Washington, right? What is she, right, do- right, what is right, she doing right. that's distancing herself from the squad? Oh, she's definitely much more on the Pelosi side of things now. Oh, wow. Right? Mm, um, I don't think I knew that either. Well, she wants to be the next Speaker of the House. Right, yeah. So, but she's like, yeah, yeah okay. Um, but that's what it is. It's not like we're going to ride this wave to the left and then you know the left yeah. is going to be on the top. It's basically just like... They've isolated the squad as being these like reaction, you know, these sort of radicals and and, yeah. and uh, you know, this is not what the Democrat Party is. And I don't know, it's hard. It's like, you know, it feels over in a lot of ways. Nah. But you know, that doesn't are... mean that it's basically just like a reversion back to what it's always been for the left, right? Which is just like deeply unpopular for mar- right, marginal right. marginal ideas that we have to fight for and argue right. for. Back all home. The time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I think it's not the thing where we're like winning elections and stuff. Like, you know, what was that? That was just weird. I don't know. I I might be like a sellout now, but as I get older, I sort of like would like to see Jayapal get into power, even if it requires her to like talk differently than if she were younger. And this might be just like a total sellout position, but it's like, it's like she's incrementalist. She's less useful. She's less useful as a marginalized. Yeah, I want to introduce you to a fellow in my city named Bob Avakian. You can disavow. Although Bob finally voted, he voted for Biden. Oh no! Oh no! Okay. All right. Okay. Let's talk about the San Francisco school board. We got to do it quickly because yeah, I sure. got to go at 1130. Okay. But all right. So I wrote about this and, um, you know, I, the reason why I did was because I don't know, like, to be honest, they asked me to, but you know, I, I did it <laughs> gladly because I had a lot of thoughts about it. It wasn't like one of those things. I generally am fine with taking assignments. I actually enjoy it. Um, and so they're like, well, do you have any thoughts about this? And of course I did. Right. Because I had been following it very carefully and the reason I've been following it very carefully is because every time I went to H Mart and I saw like these Chinese women out front who were <laughs> trying to hand me a flyer. <laughs> I think I talked about it on the podcast where it was just like the first time I saw it, like I was really, I was like, what is going on? Because they had the whole tent and everything, you know? Like, yeah. And so I was like, why, why, like, what are you guys doing? And the woman spoke no English, you know? <laughs> so I was like, so then I was like, do you speak Korean? Because I was going to talk to her in Korean. She was like, no, you know? And then I was like, okay. <laughs> You know, 
like, what's going on here? And none of them spoke any English or Korean, the people handing out these flyers at H Mart, right? And there's like, a lot of Chinese customers there, though. Yeah. Right. And actually, almost everyone who works at the H Mart in San Francisco is Chinese. And it's in a pretty Chinese district because it's close to Daly City. Yeah. And so um, mm. I was standing there and I, like you, there's a line for the H Mart, right? Because of, of uh, COVID. Because COVID? Of, is, well, no, not because of COVID, because like the H Mart is super popular. Oh. And the line oh, was like, like fire capacity. That's so funny. The line was like all white people. All, you know, they have like Teho, which is like this like very fancy like Kabichin place in the food court there. And I think mm. that's why it was so crowded. Anyway, <laughs> the line is all white people. And I'm going, I'm a Korean going into a Korean, <laughs> going to a Korean grocery store. And there's this giant tent just stabbed with Chinese ladies who don't speak English or Korean. <laughs> no, so I don't know. I thought that was kind of indicative of what this was. You know? and so in my head, I was just like, what is going on here? Like they can't get a Korean person to stand out here with them, you know? And um, since then I've been following it quite a bit. And obviously Allison Collins, who was the person who um, was on the school board, who was, I don't know. I mean, I think that if Allison Collins does not exist, that this doesn't happen. In yeah. a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, that Allison Collins was sort of the accelerant in the media that made it a big story. Whereas before, I think it would have just been a story about Lowell enclosures, you know? Um, and now, that doesn't mean that other people weren't sort of like, I don't know, in some ways humiliated in the press. Like, you know, Isaac Chotner had, uh, um, had uh, interviewed the head of the board, you know, about mm. like, you know, why are you spending so much time on school renamings when there's a pandemic, you know, and she gave some pretty bad answers. Right. And so people were mad about that. Um, but I don't know. It, uh, my sense of all of this, which I wrote about and tweeted about was that like all of this really just comes down to like Lowell. Right. It comes down to the high school, selective high school in San Francisco. And the reason why it comes down to that and the reason why I think it comes down to that is because I think that people generally voted for the, you know, it, it, the, 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 it was like 75 to 25 overall. Right. And I think that most of the people in the 75 percent, I think that the vast majority of them don't care about Lowell. Right. But like what matters is getting it on the ballot. How do you get it on the ballot in the first place? Right. Like um, and that's where it's all about Lowell. Right? Because like you look at the timeline and it's like on sometime in early February, they basically decide to change the admissions at Lowell. So it's no longer a merit based school. And then a week later or 10 days later is when they start the recall campaign. Like, come on. Right. Like, it's not it's not particularly difficult. Like schools have been mm -hmm. closed forever. Then the controversy of a renaming had been had been like long. You know, it wasn't like it had just happened or anything like that. And so, you know, I think that it, I saw it as a sort of example of you know, this sort of new Asian American organizing that we saw in Ursula's film, right? Um, about the Peter Lang protests, right? Like this is like sort of like Chinese Americans, especially first generation Chinese Americans are really getting organized right now. And you can argue that it's like, yo, it's just over WeChat. It's just a small minority of them. It's, it's not, you know, like, like they're making, like the thing that was interesting in San Francisco was that this first sort of generation Chinese WeChat activist type, you know, that I think like a lot of sort of the Asian American scholars kind of roll their eyes at, or at least like try and demonize in some way. Like those people make coalitions with all the longstanding Chinese American organizations in San Francisco, or a lot of them, right? And that's, that's, 
that's coalition building. That's organizing. I don't know how else you say it. Now, there is a lot of money put into this by Silicon Valley people. Mm-hmm. And like people will always point to that and dismiss everything just saying, like, oh, it's just like AstroTurf money. It's like I'm, you got to build something for the money to come in. And I'm sorry, like an 75 to 25 thing is not like yeah. some sort of like, you know, like the, 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 at some point the gap is too big, you know, for it to right. only be explained in this sort of way. And people say, oh, it was a low turn. All special elections are low turnout, all odd, odd year, you know, like they're, oh, well, in 2020 for the Trump. It's like, are you really going to compare like a, like a recall election <laughs> right. to like the, to the Trump? President. Like you right. can't, you can't do that. And so I don't know. I think my takeaway is just like this is basically going to be the new Asian American politics, you know, like um, like we're kind of being elbowed out as the first. No, and second, first no and come on. they're coming for us. Come on. They're not coming for us, I don't think, like, you know, but I think that they they don't really care about us at all is the point, you know. What do you like, mean by they that? Don't, like, I don't think they care about like the Asian American like media elite, like sort of being embarrassed by them. They don't care oh. about that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they, I don't even know if they're aware of well, that. They that don't read it. Exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're so, writing something else. There was, yeah. there was an interview that I thought was really useful. Well, not useful. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was useful. I don't know if it's very useful. Um, with this guy named Barrett Fong, president of SF's Chinese American mm-hmm. Democratic Club. This was in Slate. And he was asked about, do you think these Asian voters are conservative? And he more or less said, which is my instinct, that they come to this country with their own set of values. They don't really understand what US left and right means. Um, and I think, I think we could tie together the call in my understanding, like I'm coming to this just like much later than you, Jay, is the call, what the Collins tweets were tapping into, like she famously said, like Asians are house N words, you know, because they support white policies. Um, and then the Lowell debate itself, I think not all of it, but a decent amount of it was the sense that they feel like the Asian voters, first generation, second generation voters, feel like they are not recognized within the sort of black white binary which becomes like a left white bin- or left right binary not left white left right binary in the United States um and it what what I kind of think is interesting like I I had no real opinion on the Lowell stuff I could I could probably I would probably side honestly with the lottery system but with hope for a better system overall anyway um but what I think is useful or what's interesting is like the, it continually gets processed as a left versus right white versus black pro white versus pro black Uh right and and these voters are like no i came from china and i didn't have education (laughs) so i want my kids to have education and like you could disagree with them like some or they did have education you know right or they're like super elite and right right. and they want like to go to their you know the right version of number one high school from their city right 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 Um, right right. um but and i and like the quotes are like oh i know these people they're like social darwinists you know they're like they believe in like jared diamond and they're, they're horrible people but you know their interests are not the same they're they're not reducible to jared black diamond. versus you know? was that in one of, was it that one of the, did amazing. somebody quote jared or someone diamond. said survival of the fittest but i was like oh i know oh, these okay. people these are my these are my family okay <laughs> like Jared um, fong from like uh, daily city was like you know i was reading Jared Diamond. <laughs> Guns, Germs, and Steel. We come yeah, from a big uh, continent. Uh, so I think, again, this is like not a political content observation. It's more about like political form or recognition, just like they are their own thing. Um, and that's and that's kind of being realized yeah. in this vote. But then you could disagree. Well, that's, they're their own thing, but I disagree with them. That's a different, that's a different question. For you know? sure. Yeah. That was what was so illuminating about Ursula's film, right? Um, about the Peter Lang protest was that 
um, how much of it seemed to be totally divorced, at least in the minds of the people organizing. Now, I'm not saying that in reality, right, when all context is taken in. But these, you know, like they were not, they weren't, they're were just saying like, hey, this is unjust. We have to help him. Why is he the only one that gets, um, why is he the only one that's being, uh, you know, indicted on, on like nobody else has, none of the white people have. And I do think that if you think about it, like, you know, like you can ascribe anti-blackness in that statement as you should, I think. Right. But that doesn't mean that the people who are saying that sort of thing are actually thinking, you know, in terms yeah. of in that sort of way. Right. And so I think that the same thing with Lowell. It's like, all right, like, is it like, I don't know. I saw that somebody had tweeted like, oh, well, this is a actually Allison Collins tweeted it. Right. Saying like <laughs> this was always just about like uh some people trying to keep out black and brown students from their school. And I was like, I don't think that's necessarily the right framing for this. Or she called you know? it desegregation, which is like a really right. telling metaphor. I her, think that know? school segregation is horrible. Like, you know, the worst thing that happens still in this country all the time. And, um, but I don't think that the people who are defending Lowell care at all about school desegregation, right? I don't think it's like we have to keep black students out. I think it's just like we have to keep our spots and this is a zero sum game, but also like, you know, we need to keep this meritocracy because it's the only thing that we know, right? Like it's the only way that we know how to actually go. Like we don't have the access to like, nobody cares about us. Like, nobody, nobody cares about our stories, right? Like what, what the, what the hell are, is my kid going to write an essay about like playing the violin and like, you know, riding the Muni train around San Francisco as like an immigrant child, like, like these, like Stanford doesn't give a fuck about that story. Right. And so like all these people know that. And so then they realize that the only way that their kid can get into these places or to sort of what they think is the only way that they can have an upward class mobility is basically through like crushing it academically in as rigid of a meritocracy as possible. And that's what they're trying to protect. Right. Like it's not like we don't want black students at this school. Right. Like it's just like I think that's the end result and they're fine with it. Right. And like, like you can criticize them on that, you know, yeah. but like I this idea that it's like intentionally that the whole basis for it is anti-blackness. I don't think is, is correct. I think that yeah. anti-blackness is the byproduct of it and that they don't care about that either, you know? And like, that's where you should criticize. <laughs> right. It. Yeah. Right. I see. Yeah. But don't you uh, think that among immigrants, new and old I mean, I, there is a lot of racism and I think there is this idea like in a lot of Asian people's heads that like if my kid goes to a black or brown school, like that's a bad school in the same way that white people think that in this country, too. I do right, think that, right, that, right. Is, that is real and that, you know, like if a new whatever Asian immigrant comes into a district that is predominantly POC, they're kind of thinking like, oh, well, that to me, the darker the school, like the worse the school, like they have intuited some of that racism that's built into our society. Yeah. And so I wonder, like, I think that that is that is something to contend with. I don't know that that necessarily feeds into the Lowell dynamic because that's a specific right. you yeah. know, pathway. But I think in general, that's something to, that we do need to be concerned about. Yeah, yeah, I think the Lowell, like what you found is that a lot of the people who are leading this charge. Right. I mean, this is why I sort of consciously didn't put in much about like how like this is about like, you know, people whose parents are dishwashers and this many number of kids at Lowell have free lunch, which is a lot, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, cause it was mostly like 
second gen yeah asian american people like middle class upper middle class who are leading this right like the the people who started the campaign on facebook had just moved to san francisco like three months before and and they both worked in tech and it's like like who asked you about that too like are your kids even enrolled in public school you know like Like, who asked you to most of the rich people in san francisco are opting out of public school so what the heck is this about you know this is right yeah now those two i don't think in the end had a very big impact on much you know (laughs) but but you know you see these the people who are speaking you see the people who are sort of outraged about it and Mm -hmm. it's all stuff you know like it's second gen or 1.5 gen and it's people who are um it's not people who are like don't speak any english even though their kids are the ones that are affected by it for sure right yeah the people who are sort of leading it obviously are not those people um But I don't know. I, I, Tammy, I agree with you. I, I think that um, there is that there is that sentiment. Of course, that's like the story of America since you know Brown v. Board of Education, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that hasn't changed at all. And that you know that Asian people generally try and put themselves into white schools, right? Like, and they try and yeah. make their schools either all Asian or or they go to white schools. And that's like the that's also the history of immigration. It's not just Asian people, right? Sure. Um, but that context, I think, is a slightly different than the right. than the Lowell specific context. So, if you want to paint a big, broad brush, then yes, you can say that, you know. But I find this part more interesting just because the organizing part. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like I don't, Tammy, you you have a lot more experience in this than me. But like for me, like the difference is like okay, everybody just focuses on the electoral part, right? But the part that is becoming increasingly interesting to me is just like how do you get a group of people to put something on a ballot? Right. And that's so much harder. Right. It requires so much more work. It's not just candidates. Right. Like this is like a specific interest thing. And it seems like Asian people like that. There is going to be some element to it where these people who did this are going to just keep pushing. Right. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a it's like a it's a high for them. It's a thrill. Like they just took down (laughs) their first encounter with democracy. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> they just they just crushed oh it, gosh. you know. They're like they're giving like wall to wall national coverage about this, right. right? Like everybody was cheering them on. What like, is the total? I don't know. I don't know anyone who was like you know like came out against this that right. on a national stage except for like you know like some poor like person who has to you know where right. you just feel bad for them because they know they're going to get roasted right but you know of course they have to but like i i, I think that like uh it's just like one of these things where like they're going to be they're going to feel empowered you know yeah. they're going to keep they're going to keep pushing and it'll be very interesting to see where they push my sense is that they're going to like this the reason why all the silicon valley came money came into this like thing i think it's partially because like those guys have this like brain where they're just like they're gonna take away math they're gonna take away right. math and right. you know like which honestly is kind of true you know like <laughs> but, i'm against that no it's kind of true i'm taking know? a stance like, against that yeah it's kind of true that like you know math has changed right now it's not true that they nobody really? takes math anymore or that none of the teachers care about math that's horseshit but math has changed math education has changed under like this mm-hmm. new equity regime or whatever that you want to okay. call it right but um i think that all that stuff what they want to do is they want to basically disrupt in their like horrible language they're like all right we disrupted like the world of like uh 
you know, peer to peer contracts or something like that. <laughs> we, we, we disrupted like you know, the paperwork <laughs> industry around home mortgages. Now let's, yeah. now let's disrupt wokeness, oh <laughs> you know, like you can just so imagine gross. these dudes like sitting around, you know, in some like place in fucking New Zealand or something on a boat and just be like, all right, boys. Wait, were know, these, it's were time these... for the white whale. How do we disrupt <laughs> wokeness? And that's what they're trying to do. So they fund this school board recall, right? And then, of course, all they're of course this precursor to Chesa. Were these, were, were these tech people Asian? I thought I was getting no, my head no, with they're their white. Asian. They're white, they're okay. white old dudes. Um, okay. One of them's like ninety, I think. Them. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, so they're just fucking old. around. Okay. Oh, so they kind of hate public education anyway, right? They hate public education. Yeah. They hate equity stuff. They hate wokeness. Right. right. And okay. they live in San and like to their credit, the two biggest people who gave money both live in San Francisco. And right. they're probably genuinely disgusted with the homeless problem. And they think it's Chase's fault and that they need to start sweeping every woke person out so that, you know, somebody yeah. will come in and jail all the homeless. Like that's my sense of it, right? Like I think right. that um, and so whether you want to argue that Asians are being used as like a pawn, you know, I hate that stuff when people are just like, right. oh, they're pawns, right? Like, cause like the affirmative they, action debates too. Yeah. Right. Right. It gives them notes, no agency. Like, you know, like people, I'm sorry, if you're running a political campaign to do anything and you take, you don't take any money that comes in for a special issue thing like this, you know, like you're going to lose. Like the, the money for like electing Collins and all these school board members, like in the election was flipped. Like they got so much more money than their opposition. And now it's just flip flopped. Right. And so um, these people now have fundraising contacts. They have a big victory. And, you know, I think they've basically every Asian parent in the country has basically seen some political. <laughs> they're seeing like the light in some sort of way. Right. And um <laughs> I don't we know. We should have had Andy read the Chinese local ethnic press because I'm wondering how this victory oh. is appearing to them. You know, chat? because yeah. it could be sold in a different way than we're talking about. I'm just curious how they're gonna they're yeah. gonna frame it. I can maybe check that out. I do feel like some <laughs> well, of these writers for like SF Chronicle could 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 read Chinese. They can, know, yeah. That's, that's just racist. They did talk about it. Curious, My friend like, went what to the headline uh, framing is. So after the election, there are all these parties in San Francisco for like Chinese people. To celebrate and one of my friends oh my went God. and he's, he said it was like like a full-on party you know like they wow. felt like they had won and um they won were like what like i don't know because these people are all up know? for election next year that's a part right. like i don't like recall well, do we, elections do we like, even it's know very who... symbolic this thing well okay so to get to your point earlier jay like london breed backed the recall right yeah so, so does scott wiener the state senator so the question know, is like who are they gonna re- who are they gonna replace him with has that been announced? oh london breed has 10 days basically to come up with replacements they're gonna be like and appointees but yeah. the rest of them are yeah. still it's gonna be like a, a Bangladeshi, a Chinese, a Korean. <laughs> like, what is she gonna but like do? all right wing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it matters because they're all gonna, you know, like the yeah. election's so soon. I mean, that's a ridiculous part about all of this, right? Which is yeah. that, like, that, like it's not like these people can they can't. I don't think they can reverse the Lowell decision, right? Which would right. be like the first thing that they would want to do. And then London right, Breed right. went on television this weekend and said, oh, it was about school closures, which I found to be very interesting, you know? Oh, she wants to dodge um, the Lowell issue. No, I, I don't think. think she wants to dodge the Lowell issue. I think she's very smartly getting on the side of, like, you know, these closures, which, by the way, is hysterical because who was the first mayor to shut down a city and, like, got so much credit for it? 
London breed, you know, oh, wow. and now she's playing the other side. <laughs> she's just she's like, very savvy. She has no principles. Good for her. Yeah. She's so formidable. I like. I, I interviewed her once, and it, um, you know, there's a lot there. Like I, I don't know. Like, you you can dislike her, and you can um, you can disagree with her politics, and you can you can think that she's like a neoliberal Bloomberg bot or whatever. But uh, there's she's quite formidable, you know, and I would. You, I think you cross her. her lightly, at, yeah. I think you cross her at your own peril. You know, as Chase, I think is about to find out because wow. once that starts, she's going to toss him right under the bus, and um, she's going to blame him for everything. And guess what? Everyone's going to everyone's going to agree. You know, you he's think- the prosecutor. He's not the chief of police. You know, right, right. he's not like the head of the Department of Social Services. He's not the mayor. You know, right. <laughs> he's the prosecutor for, for for San Francisco, and you know, he's just going to catch all the blame for it. Because, so his um, recall is June seventh, and you think it? that okay. the Asian base is angry because he hasn't been hard enough on crime to prevent and address Asian hate crimes. Is that kind of the, what you're thinking this Chinese wave could translate into? Yeah. And I also think that they think they're, I think that they now see themselves on the team of the anti-woke type of Mm -hmm. stuff. That it's all connected. And and like, that's a, that's a dumb term to use because I don't think any of these people would know what woke and not woke is. Although, you know, I did see that some of these Chinese organizations did start writing like statements about crt in schools and stuff or yeah something. but what the fuck it's like the blinding the death you know like- um, but they uh but you know like they're thinking in their best interests that's what I, you know like that was my end yeah goal which and um this is something we talk about all the time on this show which is obviously politics built out of stealth interest is going to be much stronger right and yeah um, I think that we sometimes mischaracterize Asian immigrants and what their actual self-interests are, and that if you boil it down, then their self-interests are going to align with somebody like Eric Adams, right? Like um, almost every single time, or somebody like London Breed every single time, right? Like that doesn't mean they're Republicans, right? Because Eric Adams is not a Republican. That doesn't mean that they're Trump voters, right? Because I think that they can see the xenophobia, whatever, right? But I think that the idea that they're going to be progressives hard to hard to believe right now right it doesn't mean they can't be persuaded i think it's a very persuadable group mm-hmm. yeah but that's why that's why you, you can't make these arguments to those populations through culture war yeah issues right or even racial justice social justice issues you just have to be like don't you want health care you know and then I think that's that's like a better way to go about it. But. Or like, you know, we might talk about Battle Home of the Tiger Mother in a future episode. But like my take on a lot of this stuff is <laughs> <Good> like, <tease. laughs> my take on a lot of this stuff is like, track. yeah. I know. Andy, did, you take, did um, you take your daughter to her first violin lesson? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not her first. It was like oh, her third or fourth. Oh, wait, it is frozen. <laughs> I think he might. I think Andy uh, just like that, That's not me show. though. That's... He was like, no. Don't out me as, as a tiger mom. <laughs> okay, go tiger ahead. Dad, sure. okay. Tiger dad. Just to get back to, it does seem like this debate becomes, what is education about? Like, let's just be honest. Education debates are always about like class mobility and economic opportunities and all that stuff. And um, right. I would say, so like a progressive take on it would be like, well, we should open it up 
open that much, open up them, open up those opportunities as much as possible to like, you know, make more lulls and all that stuff rather than it seems like the sort of Collins led uh, faction. Yeah. There's a little bit about opportunity, but a lot of it was about like kind of changing the nature of, or the character or the mission of education, at least the way they were talking about it. And I think that's what the Asian um, voters took offense Mm -hmm. to. Right. And like, we should just be honest, like what is education? It's not, it's not necessarily a leftist thing. It's about like upper class mobility and like, you know, monopolizing privilege and resources, but we should like be, we should confront that in in the way we think about these things rather than uh, dodge it, you know? Oh, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me now? You're freezing in the middle of that, but I think we got your gist. Let's do last thoughts. Round table. (laughs) But you're, you're still freezing. Maybe turn off your, turn off your camera, Andy. (laughs) That works sometimes. Uh, Let's do a round table of last thoughts about these two topics. I'm not so familiar. (laughs) I feel like everything around the San Francisco stuff I've learned from you guys, but I think I was looking at the demographics around who's in the schools. And I just, I think it's really, I think the problem with these sorts of like recalls and kind of citywide school votes a lot of times is just that people with really no investment in the schools or like actual self-interest in the schools are shaping education policy. And I think it can be really alarming. And I think like, I don't know that I have a, you know, I'm not like anti-proposition, anti-referendum, anti-recall necessarily, but I do feel like more and more recently we've been seeing them used to incredibly cynical conservative ends in a lot of major cities. And I wonder, yeah, I I do think like what you're saying may be true that there's a little bit of this kind of gotcha politics from really well-funded, mostly tech interests. And um, I just hope that I hope the best for Chase in, in these coming months because it seems like overall he has done a pretty good job in the city. Yeah, you know, somebody was like basically saying that the difference between Chase and the school board is that Chase is doing basically what he said he was going to do. But then I was like, no, but the school board is also saying what they were going to do. You know, they were also doing what they said that we were going to do. And one of the priorities about equity uh especially in these big cities at this point, one of the priorities is always to change these elite magnet schools, right? Like in in every city, it was Northern Virginia, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, everywhere, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's one of their things that they try and do. Right. And so they were doing what they said that they were going to do too. And it was more that, you know, there was a rejection of it because uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it was, I mean, Alison Collins really like they're, you know, like, is she like a CIA plan or something like that? You know, like how could you possibly have somebody who was, who looked worse at every, like she sued the school district, you know, she sued the city of San Francisco. She sued her individual school board colleagues, you know, uh, for $87 million total. The lawsuit was crazy. It had like typos on every single page. It, It felt like it had been written by like a deranged person and, you know, she herself is like the is married to like a very wealthy real estate developer, you know, and so like, how could you possibly so have famous. like a worse, worse, a worse representative for this? But, you know, I don't know. You know, like, uh, like I think that like, uh, I don't know. I, I think that sort of like, I think the unfortunate part is that any sort of equity and in, in education stuff now is going to be filtered through Allison mm-hmm. Collins, you know, like she's that famous now and everyone in the press knows her, right? And everyone in the press knows about this story. (laughs) And, you know, all of it is just going to be like, here's another wacky Allison Collins, right? In this, in this area doing her CRT, right? And then like, it becomes one seamless narrative. And that's the, that's actually the part that I'm most concerned about 
is in the ways in which law and order and educate. I, I interviewed like the head of Manhattan Institute for my newsletter, right? And like he was making <laughs> this argument that. basically saying that like he's trying to fuse law and order and educational merit is what he calls it, right? And, uh, and the fight against what they call race essentialism. They want it to all be one thing. And I think that they're right about one thing, which is that those things can become one thing. Like that can become a political identity and that it will be a political identity that is very appealing to minorities in cities, right? Especially mm -hmm. immigrants. And I don't know, it's hard to counter at this point because like, you know, you see the effects of it and you see the amount of effort that people are willing to go to those ends. I mean, these aren't political people, like these aren't people who've, who are like political otherwise, right? I mean, like I told you, like, you know, the people in front of H Mart that I saw, like they don't speak yeah. English. They don't speak Korean. They're just like yeah. standing out there. I mean, like, I'm sure they probably people. were paid for that, but right. Yeah. No, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But it's just like um, at that point, why do you concentrate on that one population so heavily, sure. right? And like it's uh, it's not like a trying to make it's it's making a very specific type of argument. Anyway, Andy, your last yeah. thoughts. Uh, let's see if we can get you this time if you're not breaking up. I think Andy, Andy might be gone. gone. So we can close out here, unfortunately. Okay, we can close out the show. Um, the uh, last, uh, Timmy, any last thoughts about uh, you know these two tragedies in 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 the city? I think just um, no. I think they're horrible, and I wish the best for their families. And I hope that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to use their deaths in any kind of like opportunistic political way. I think I I was hoping just on this show that we could kind of process this stuff together, but right. still, you know, keep in line, keep in our sights, like what our overall vision for our society is. Yes, I think that's I, that it was. I think you're right. Like, um, it's hard to not one should not deny themselves like the feelings of deep compassion and identification fear and fear for one's children you know i mean that's why the 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 piece that nicole wrote was mm -hmm. affecting to me i mean i have a kid who's a yeah not to go like i'm as a father of a daughter but i i do have an asian sure. daughter yeah. you know and um now i can rationalize it all the ways that i want to and i think this is why the class element that we we're talking about is scary to people like me or to people in the media who you know are middle class over middle class it's like, there's nothing you can do to protect against something like that, right? Like, th these are not people who, um, and that that's why it's scary to that. Now, we can argue till the cows come home about whether we care too much about that or whether we don't care about it. But you also shouldn't deny people their emotional responses. Like, for, and I think it does make it more scary when I think something like, well, I don't know. I don't know how much more protected I could possibly be in life, <laughs> you know? And, it, like, obviously, like, my kid could have been the same way. You know, like, yeah. And so uh, having denying that emotional response is not is one thing, but then also turning around and only in, embracing a type of reactionary politics or allowing it to totally. sort of red pill you to death is like, you know, like that's something that we would hopefully ward against here. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the only other thing I'll say is I know I said like that I'm kind of down on public transit, but ultimately, like for myself, I'm going to try to choose to still stay really attached to public transit and public spaces right. and the public systems I use. Because I also think a mass retreat from those systems by people who are middle class and upper middle class and who are, you know, doing advocacy around those systems would be a disaster 
would make things even worse. Right. right? So we need to also have like a a little bit of a principled response to certain feelings of fear. Okay. Um, On that note, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, We do this every single week. If you want to support the show, it's goodbye.substack.com. There you can sign up and sign up for our discord i guess people on the discord are making like a metaverse or something like that i don't know i don't really understand <laughs> this is the next step in our evolution <laughs> towards a fully online community i know i, know. So, I don't um, even know what know, that is if yet. you're interested yeah. in our metaverse you know join our show you can email us at time to say goodbye pod or you can reach us on twitter at ttsg pod uh andy has i don't know where did Andy go? I hope he's okay. Andy will be back next week Andy, too. Your and thank you. Sucks. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening. All right, bye. Sei con me, con me